Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Consequences Beyond. I'm Caroline. I'm Marissa. And I'm Julissa. We're three UMass Boston gender leadership and public policy students who have spent the semester investigating a wide range of how leaders responded to COVID-19 and its effects on the education system. Over the course of three episodes, we'll explore national and international strategies and communication, differences in state initiatives and data analysis, and the local impact on communities, teachers, and families. The power that decision makers have in this moment have real life consequences for families and communities. When we look beyond the politics, the science, the differences, what we are left with is a humanity that must live in this moment and look to an unknown future. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to our first episode. Before jumping into the information I've prepared, I want to clarify the timeline I used and how I selected the examples that we'll be looking into. Though the coronavirus and the way in which we respond to it evolves every single day, my goal was to understand the context and conditions that influenced where we are now in November of 2020, so most of the research that I'll be discussing is focused on the spring and summer of this year. There have obviously been significant developments and changes within more recent months and even weeks, but again, my focus is on what set the stage for this fall. I also want to recognize that there are hundreds of countries, leaders, and strategies that I won't have the chance to dive into in this short episode. You'll hear a bit as to why I selected the countries that I did as the episode progresses. And don't forget, Though I'll be looking at big picture national landscapes, my classmates Marissa and Jalisa are going to get more and more in depth as they narrow our focus down to the state and local levels. So be sure to stay tuned for what they have to share. So let's get started. Before we can understand the way in which we've handled school closures and their reopenings here in the United States, we have to understand the surrounding conditions that impact those processes starting with the government's general response to the pandemic. In March, following a few months of watching the virus's growth in China and Europe from afar, conditions are rapidly changing in the United States. President Donald Trump had restricted travel into the U.S. from China during February, though only for non-U.S. citizens, and in early March, he restricted incoming travel from Europe as well. On March 13th, he declared a state of emergency, and a couple of days later, he created social distancing guidelines that were to be in effect for two weeks, though that period eventually became slightly extended. By late March, Trump signs the $2 trillion CARES Act, which is perhaps one of the most impactful measures he takes throughout his coronavirus response, aimed at curbing the economic impact of the pandemic for individuals and businesses. It is at this point in time where we start to see the emerging battle between the federal and state governments, which, as we'll see throughout the episode, comes to really define the U.S.'s response to the virus. States are looking for additional resources and supplies from the federal government, like ventilators and masks. And here's what Trump has to say on the matter. You know, when you talk about ventilators, that's sort of like buying a car. It's a highly, it's very expensive. It's a very uh, intricate piece of equipment. You know what it is, uh, heavily computerized. And, you know, the good ones are very, very expensive. And, you know, they'd say, uh, like Governor Cuomo and others, they'd say we want, you know, 30,000 of them, 30,000. Think of this. You know, you go to hospitals, they'll have one in a hospital. 
And now all of a sudden, everybody's asking for these vast numbers. So, uh, but we have now companies stepping up and they're building them, they're doing the masks. We've already delivered millions and millions of masks. But remember, we're really a second line of attack. The first line of attack is supposed to be the hospitals and the local government and the states, the states themselves. I mean, we have people like Governor Inslee. He should be doing more. He shouldn't be relying on the federal government. Governor Inslee, that's the state of Washington. He uh, was a failed presidential candidate. And, you know, he's, he's always complaining. And your governor of Michigan, I mean, she's not stepping up. I don't know if she knows what's going on, but all she does is sit there and blame the federal government. Trump advisor Jared Kushner echoes the same sentiment and seems to evoke an us-versus-them type of territoriality when it comes to supplies, even within the United States. The notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. So we're encouraging the states to make sure that they're assessing the needs, they're getting the data from their local, uh, local uh, situations. This obviously has huge implications for the states themselves, though Marissa is going to tell us more about that in our next episode. The next few weeks and months are pretty chaotic with misinformation and, frankly, drama, and we see less coming out of the White House and more actions being taken by governors. In early July, however, Trump turned his attention to the question of school reopenings. Schools must open in the fall, he tweeted in all caps, followed by several exclamation points. In another tweet shortly after, he threatened cutting off funding for schools that don't open, citing success in schools across Denmark, Germany, Norway, and Sweden in their reopening processes. Of course, what Trump didn't mention was the drastically different circumstances in those countries compared to here in the United States. Elsewhere, the ability to open schools has tended to reflect low infection rates, the availability of testing, access to personal protective equipment, and the like. The reopening of schools is a downstream consequence of these factors. In the United States, however, it can sometimes feel as though we treat school reopening as its own separate issue. Before looking at how other countries have handled the specific question of school reopenings, let's take a look at how the countries Trump named, Denmark, Germany, Norway, and Sweden, have fared on the virus, period, before we look at educational policies. On April 1st, roughly two weeks after most countries took their initial steps in combating the virus, 15% of COVID tests in the U.S. were coming back positive, compared to 7.7% in Denmark and 9.4% in both Germany and Norway. Sweden didn't have reliable data until later in the summer. Two months later, by June 1st, the U.S. was able to get that number down to 4%, a notable improvement, though Denmark, Germany, Norway, and a slew of other countries dwindled that percentage down to below 1%. Right before the return to school in August, the percentage of tests resulting positive climbed back up in the United States to 7.3%, while the other countries remained at near zero rates, with the exception of Sweden at 2.76%. Remember, these figures represent the percentage of tests coming back positive. When you translate these percentages to raw numbers, the U.S. fares even worse, given its much larger population. So, it is safe to say that Trump's comparison lacked any real substance. That being said, Sweden is a clear outlier among the other three countries that Trump cited. 
Prime Minister Stefan Lovin elected to implement voluntary guidelines, like working from home if possible, wearing a mask if you want to, and trying to avoid groups of people. While Sweden didn't implement its own travel restrictions among its citizens, surrounding countries did. So Swedes, in effect, were grounded not because of their own country's leadership or decisions, but because of their neighbors. They never closed schools for students under the age of 16, even in the spring, and nearly all businesses remained open with little to no changes in service. The elderly and residents of long-term care facilities have been the hardest hit and make up roughly half of all deaths. While many experts have been surprised at how Sweden's relaxed approach hasn't been as disastrous as one might imagine, the general consensus is that the Swedish model is not one to emulate. The government's mere suggestions haven't exactly been successful. Sweden has the highest COVID-19 death rate within the Nordic countries, one of the highest within all of Europe, and the 12th highest in the world but still not as high as in the US. A major difference between the US and Sweden worth noting is that all Swedish citizens are covered by its universal healthcare system. So what was happening in the other three countries? In Norway, for one, the government enforced mandatory closures of all schools, cultural centers, recreational areas, and nearly all businesses at the onset of the pandemic in mid-March. Prime Minister Erna Solberg also closed Norway's borders for international travel through early July. She has emphasized that she's deferred to scientists and their research in informing her policy decisions. Schools were among the first aspects of society to begin the reopening process about one month after the initial closures. Kindergartens resumed in-person instruction on April 20th, followed by grades 1 through 4 one week later, and all schools reopened with precautions in place by May 11th. Practices include temperature checks upon arrival to school premises, setting maximum class sizes to 15 to 20 students, encouraging use of outdoor space or distancing desks while indoors, and training staff on hygiene practices. Unlike in the United States, Norwegian schools opened before their businesses. It wasn't until May that one-to-one -one business operations, like hair salons, could reopen, and not until early June that people could go to bars or gather in groups. Similarly, Denmark also phased students back into the classroom based on age group, and was the first European country to return their students to in-person learning following a one-month nationwide lockdown. Arrival times for students were staggered to avoid congestion, and from there, temperature and symptom checks were performed on each student. No family members or non-students or non-faculty or staff were allowed into school buildings. The government provided additional funding, cleaning products, and thermometers to all schools. Cooperation between stakeholders, including teachers, unions, and the Ministry of Education was key. While unions and authorities have tended to be at odds with one another in the U.S., the vice president of Denmark's teachers' union, Dorte Lange, cited cooperation as being the key to its success. Danish Prime Minister Met Frederiksen said that Parliament's unanimous agreement to enforce lockdown measures was the first time in her political career that she witnessed such cooperation, a far cry from the partisan response among politicians in the United States. The collaboration across the aisle in Denmark proved incredibly effective. 
Denmark recorded fewer than 250 deaths in the spring, and a survey conducted by the Pew Research Center found that 95% of respondents approved of the government's handling of the pandemic, the highest satisfaction rate of any country worldwide. Outside of the policies themselves, Fredrickson has taken a few creative measures aimed at boosting morale and promoting a sense of togetherness. In the early days of the pandemic, Denmark's youngest ever prime minister posted a video to Facebook of her in her home, washing dishes and singing along to music. It was cute and goofy and definitely not something you'd expect of someone holding the country's highest office. Similar creative and homey strategies have been used elsewhere too, and they actually tend to be a common theme among successful leaders. Returning to Norway, Prime Minister Erna Solberg held several press conferences in a question and answer format that were aimed directly at the nation's children, and from which journalists were banned from attending. She actually modeled this format after one of Met Fredriksson's own strategies. In these conferences, she told children that it was okay to be scared and that she too missed being able to hug her friends. Her strategy was praised by child psychiatrists. Here's what she had to say on her decision to do this. I decided to do a press conference for children with the, together with a children's channel in the Norwegian broadcasting and a large newspaper who got all of their, their viewers and, and readers to, to write in different questions and we, answer them on the live TV uh, and uh, I think uh, this was also when when schools were closed so I think most young people in Norway were looking at television that day as part of their homeschooling and I think it was quite effective also to to address seriously uh, children because children are really affected really affected by this they were uh, not allowed to see their friends they were not allowed to do their sports activities and they were not going to ordinary school but were digitally schooled so they needed an explanation mm. and needed to be taken seriously new zealand prime minister jacinda ardern has used a similar strategy and has pushed a kindness first approach by sharing videos in which she urges Kiwis to look after their neighbors and make sacrifices for the greater good. In streaming these community-centered messages from her couch, Ardern has aimed to lead by example and unite New Zealand through difficult times. While her message was empathetic, she simultaneously implemented strict lockdown measures and quarantine policies, much like Fredriksen of Denmark and Solberg of Norway. It is clear that the combined strategies were successful. By late April, New Zealand had fewer than 200 cases, 18 deaths, and public trust in government reached 80%. Large-scale success across the country translated into the ability to reopen schools in mid-May. I'm not saying that in order to have a successful response to the coronavirus, leaders have to show their more human side and host these modern-day fireside chat-like videos, but the leaders that did so enjoyed high approval ratings, increased trust in government, and the data demonstrates that their countries have done categorically better. Their messages of resilience, community, and empathy were a meaningful addition to the harsh policies that those leaders enacted.
The United States has seen neither harsh measures nor unifying sentiments at the national level. If we're talking about messaging, there's a lot to unpack with Donald Trump. For one, he got the virus. He's seldom pictured with a mask and openly mocks people that do promote mask wearing. He constantly refers to COVID-19 as the China virus. He has told Americans not to worry and to not let the virus control their lives. We could spend a lot of time analyzing what his actions say about his reproach to the pandemic and how he differs from Met Fredrickson, Erna Solberg, and Jacinda Ardern, but suffice to say that he is not exactly leading by example. Returning now to the subject of education, noticeably quiet on the subject has been Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who has long been criticized for her lack of experience in public school education. In the very few instances in which she has weighed in on school reopenings, she has simply echoed the same message as Trump and insists that education leaders across the country must come to their own decisions on what to do. Ultimately, it's not a matter of if schools should reopen, it's simply a matter of how. They must fully open and they must be fully operational. And how that happens is best left to education and community leaders. The irony here, of course, is that DeVos is the country's top education leader. While a national blanket, one-size-fits-all approach to handling school reopening certainly isn't feasible or appropriate, providing guidance or a plan beyond simply stating, you must open, would be helpful. Germany provides us with a good example of a country that has successfully empowered its individual states to determine their courses without fragmenting the entire country. Each of Germany's 16 states has been responsible for its own mandates and public health measures. That being said, Chancellor Angela Merkel has coordinated heavily with the 16 state leaders to be sure that all Germans were receiving the same information and practicing near identical measures, thus avoiding the kind of division and conflicting actions that we have seen here. There was no national lockdown or mask mandate though all states implemented both of these measures anyway, differing only in minor details and timeline. Schools slowly phased in students based on age, starting on May 4th. The fact that Merkel is a trained scientist has also been cited as an asset to the way in which she's responded to the pandemic and is a contributing factor to public trust in her leadership. Going back to Trump now and his disjointed approach, He has maintained that the federal government is merely a backup for state governments. This attitude has been the hallmark of his coronavirus response and extends to the way in which he views the process of reopening schools. It is up to the states and districts to determine how to move forward, just like Betsy DeVos said. This, of course, comes with an asterisk. On one hand, he tells local leaders to call the shots, but on the other, He has been quick to criticize those that have implemented measures he disagrees with. The Los Angeles School District is the latest and one of the largest in the country to say they're not going back to school in the fall. Mistake. What do you tell parents and teachers who feel that it's unsafe to go back? I would tell parents and teachers that you should uh, find yourself a new person, whoever's in charge of that decision, because it's a terrible decision. To summarize what we've seen in those four countries that Trump mentioned back in that July tweet calling for U.S. schools to fully reopen, 
the strategies employed by most of those countries created vastly different circumstances that did allow their schools to reopen safely. Denmark and Norway paired severe policies with compassionate messages. Germany united its states to promote a uniform and science-based response. And Sweden basically crossed its fingers and hoped for the best. You might have noticed that the most successful countries in combating the virus, both ones that I've mentioned here and those that I didn't get to, have employed more or less the same strategies and policies. They pretty much all had a very strict one-month national lockdown, followed by a very gradual and slow reopening process of society, starting with schools, aided by additional government-provided resources, followed by businesses and services. Cooperation and collaboration among stakeholders and differing political factions was also cited by well-performing leaders. There seemed to be relatively few ways of handling the pandemic well, and a huge number of ways to handle it poorly, both of which we've seen during the past 20 minutes. So that's what I've got on national leadership and approaches to education in the time of COVID. Like I said at the beginning, there's so much more to explore here, but I hope this served as a good jumping off point for future conversations and a solid backdrop to the episodes to come. In our next episode, Marissa is going to walk us through how leaders in Massachusetts and New Mexico have handled the pandemic and its impact on their schools. Thanks again for listening to Consequences Beyond.